Welcome, Capital Raisers. Chris Finley joined us for the premiere of Season 4 and Talk Shop with me about how he sold a lot of his 8,000 multifamily unit portfolio and pivoted into assisted living and memory care facilities. We discuss more as the show unfolds. Are you guys ready to raise? Shout out to the Family Office Club and our newest show sponsor, Invest Next. Whether you have 5 million or 500 million AUM, Invest Next delivers an institutional great experience to your investors and automates tasks like K1 distributions with a single click. With that, it's Capital Razor Show episode 294, and it starts now. Rock and roll, I got Chris Finley on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing great, Ruben. Fantastic. Capital Razor Show season four, powered by Family Office Club. Really excited to get launched on this new season. Really excited to dive into joint ventures and capital raising and working with family offices. So this is going to be a blast. Welcome once again. So for the audience that doesn't know you, Chris, why don't you start with telling us a little bit about how you got involved in real estate, joint ventures, and working with family offices and raising capital and all that good stuff. It's a long story. I started in 1980. Nice. So we've been doing this for 43 years, and we started up in New Hampshire, primarily focused in the brokerage management and appraisal business, and grew that. And then starting in about 90, 1990, we moved into the development business, became one of the largest tax credit developers in the country, developed about 40 projects using the low income tax credit program. And then 2010, we moved away from development, moved into investment, and focused on value-add multifamily until recently, until the last few years. And now our focus really is more on senior housing investment. Senior, And where are you doing that? National platform. We're based in Dallas, but we acquire and manage assets all over the United States. Fantastic. Well, this is going to be good stuff diving in. How about we start with this, man? You've been around since the 80s. You've experienced a couple of crashes and corrections. What have you learned along the way about investing because of the crashes and how does it affect the way that you approach life going forward? That's a great question. First of all, you have to be very careful with leverage. And the key thing to remember is that if you can survive the downturn in the economy, and there will always be downturns, if you can survive it, you come out the other end and you'll do better. It always goes up. We have a scale going up. You may have a little dip down in a down market, but then if you can survive that down market, it comes up and it comes up higher than before. So if you can survive those challenging times and hang on to the asset, not lose it, you'll do very well. But if you over leverage and get to a point where you're going to lose that asset, then you lose your whole investment. Now, the senior living that you're doing now, is it a build? Is it a development play? Or is it, are you purchasing existing units and multifamily properties and then putting seniors in it? What's your business model? So because of COVID, this whole industry was decimated. We focus primarily on assisted living and memory care. As I said, because of COVID, they've really been struggling. So there's a lot of opportunity to buy assets significantly below replacement cost. And that's where we focus. I mean, I just think 
it'd be almost impossible to make sense of doing a development deal in that space today. And there's just terrific buys out there due to A, the COVID situation, and then B, the economy and the, and the financial markets today. So it's a great time to be buying. I look at it, it's like, it's like 2010 multifamily. If I could go back to 2010 and do it over again, I'd buy everything I could see. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd forget about underwriting. I'd just buy it. I think the same thing applies to senior housing today, and even more so because it's just unbelievable. So when you say senior housing, you're specifically referring to assisted living. Is that correct? The senior housing space is consists of independent living, assisted living, and memory care. The step above that is nursing homes, which is called skilled nursing facilities. That's a whole different level. And then you also have the active adult, which is like the 55 plus multifamily. And that's more of a multifamily asset, in my opinion. But getting into senior housing, other than independent, sometimes we have independent component within the assisted living and the memory care. So you might have all three in one or two facilities on the same campus. Mm -hmm. So the majority of our portfolio is strictly assisted in memory care. Okay, on the assisted living side, that requires a independent license to manage practitioners. Is that correct? So when you're That's, buying these properties, are you buying two businesses, the real estate and the the licensing, or do you, how does that work? You're absolutely right. The properties have to be licensed. You have to receive a license, and the operator has to be licensed. And when you transact on these deals, you have a propco and opco. So for every deal you buy, there's an entity that owns the property. There's another entity that owns the operations of that property. They're separated. They can they go up into the same ownership structure eventually. So, but you buy the entire business, including the licensing that comes with it from the existing. Well, operator? you have to relicense it yourself. Okay. So you can't. The licenses aren't transferable. You have to relicense it for your operating company. Interesting. Okay, cool. So how long have you been doing that particular business model? Because you mentioned some other things that you had done, some developments and some multifamily value add. We started looking at preparing for this strategy in 2019. And then 2020, we were out starting to look for acquisitions. And then very fortunately, we didn't buy anything because March, you know, March of 2020, COVID came along. It was really devastating to the whole industry. So you could have been the best in the world. COVID uniformly hurt everybody. Real tragic situation, obviously. We really didn't get into acquisition mode until 21. Bought one or two there. And then in 22, we bought 12 assets. And this year, we had anticipated acquiring a lot more. But due to the financial situation uh, and the banking situation currently, we'll probably end up with five or six deals this year. So I'm curious about these last 10 years. A lot of multifamily syndicators have just been riding this uphill trend and making a lot of money. Over the last year or two, I've seen a lot of people leaving the value add space and kind of sub-niche down, go into A-class or C-class or even complete gutting of buildings or they've moved into assisted living or self-storage. 
or even RV parks and mobile home parks, because it seems like it's getting harder and harder to find a deal that makes financial sense, particularly in markets where limited partners have been programmed to be familiar and comfortable with a lot of appreciation. So for you, you mentioned 2019 as the moment of time where you started looking at this. And then I think you may have not acquired until more recently. So tell us a little bit about why things are so easy to find or or not necessarily easy, but why there are a lot more deals there. Is it specifically because of banking or is there some kind of a resident problem based off of the COVID situations that happened or why are people struggling and forcing to sell to people like you that can buy at discounted rates? I think the the multifamily business, let's face it, really boomed from 2010 to, I would say, around 2021. Yes. We sold most of our portfolio in 21. We had about, I think, seven or 8,000 units, and then we pared that down to probably 1,500 units currently. So when the market went crazy, we realized that it just got stupid. And so we tried to sell everything. We ended up selling about 80, 85% of our portfolio. But that was just an opportune time. And, and then buying assets was crazy. I was, certainly wasn't a buyer at those numbers. I was a seller at those numbers, but not a buyer. But then that gave us the capital to redeploy into the senior space. And even before COVID, the senior space, we felt, was a very good investment and much higher returns in multifamily and sort of at the, at the forefront of what we saw as a real long-term strategy. So when you look at multifamily 2010, the real growth in, in multi was caused by the millennials leaving mom's basement and going out and getting a job and wanting an apartment. So... Millennials really were the catalyst of of creating a huge demand and the growth that happened in the multifamily business and almost throughout the country, almost everywhere. Now we have the baby boomers that are coming along and coming 2025, they're going to be turning 80 years old. The first wave of that is turning 80 years old. 80 is the magic number for moving into senior housing whether it be independent, assisted, or memory care, one of those three you're going to end up in, chances are, when you get to about 80 years old. So now we have that baby boomer generation really pushing the senior housing space, and that's why we've sort of pivoted over to that. Now, we'll continue to invest in multifamily. I mean, multi, in my opinion, is one of the best assets there is and always will be. But the big, the big growth, as far as we're concerned, is going to be senior housing. And we just think it's a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity right now to acquire those assets. All right, cool. So let's talk about this journey that you've been on, raising capital. Because I know you mentioned you work with family offices and institutional investors or quasi-institutional investors. When did you start partnering with these particular style of joint venture partners? Was it in the very beginning and you've been with them ever since? Or how have you been particularly seeking new capital? Is it all relationships? What have you learned along the way? I'm kind of curious about this, this journey you've been on from day one, from back in the 80s and, and how things have evolved over time. In the tax credit world, as a developer, you're allocated tax credits 
and banks and other institutions buy those tax credits. And there's usually more demand, there's tremendous demand for those credits. So when you get awarded credits, it's not like you have to sell them. The buyers are coming to you. They're trying to sell you on why you should sell to them and not somebody else. So raising equity through the tax credit program is extremely easy. You get an allocation of credits, you're all of a sudden the prettiest gal at the prom. And every tax credit buyer is after you. So, And then you negotiate whatever the best deal is with that buyer. That's how that structure works. It's unique because there's a limited amount of tax credits every year. And uh, banks in particular have to buy them in order to get what's called CRA benefits, Community Reinvestment Act. And so it's easy to sell that. So it's not like you have to go out and find capital. You get the credits. You have to go out and get the credits. You get the credits. Capital comes to you. Then in 2010, we moved away from development, moving into acquisitions of existing assets. And after the crash in 08, as I'm sure you know, market was decimated and you could buy apartments very cheaply, mm -hmm. you know, 50% or less of replacement costs. So why would you develop new when you can buy it for 50 cents on the dollar? Mm -hmm. So we deployed our own capital until about 2014. And then we deployed most of our capital. And then we went out looking for partners. Because of our experience with institutional capital previously, we were able to go to the big guys and get joint venture funding from them. And then do they provide 100% of the equity or do you have to still raise like 10% or any portion of it? Most of them are in the 90, we do what's called a 90-10 JV and our one partner comes in with 90% and then we bring in the other 10. So on these joint ventures, you mentioned they, they haven't been syndications, if I understood correctly. So then what's the structure? Do they have ongoing roles within the joint venture? Are they investing side by side with you? How does the structure work when you partner with those types of investors? No, the joint venture is a sort of, um, I wouldn't say they're passive. They're institutional. They're very sophisticated. And they have rights within the partnership agreement. So sale or refi in particular, they have the approval right for that. And sometimes capital improvements over a certain number, they have the right to approve that. Otherwise, the general partner basically runs the investment and handles the day-to-day -day operations and reporting to the partner. Is it the same partners on most of your deals or are you finding new partners? Or had you been finding new partners along the way? You're always looking for new partners. In general, it's it's like a core of, say, five or six that you're constantly repeating with. But occasionally you find a new one and then do multiple deals with a new partner. And sometimes one of the previous partners has a different strategy, then moves on to some other asset class or whatever. So, But it's it's usually the same. I've interviewed people that have started with institutional capital right from day one and others that have been interested in scaling into institutional capital. You know, my friend Richard Wilson likes to say, if you're going to raise from 400 investors versus one, it's a lot more challenging. And that's why he kind of promotes working with large institutions or check writers or family offices. But I've also heard this, and I'm, I'm kind of curious about this particular thing. For somebody that's scaling into relationships with these types of larger check writers, 
do you write a business plan or document structure and then take it to them? Or do you go to them and then, because I've heard that sometimes they'll take your docs and they'll just rip them up and then you just wasted 10 or $20,000, if not more on docs, lawyer docs. So how, how does that work? Because they have to have their certain power and, and the control that they want a lot of times when you're working with them. What's been your experience as far as that pertains? You normally don't create the formal documents until you have the deal. So when you get control of an asset, you put together your business plan and investment package, investment memorandum, and then you go to your joint venture partner and present it to them and see if they like the deal, if they, they want the deal. They have very sophisticated teams. This is not the one or two people. They have a massive staff of analysts and, and they're very sophisticated. They're very knowledgeable of every market. They see every deal and they're great partners because of that, because they'll, they'll possibly find something that you didn't see and, and they'll look at something different and they may know something that you don't know about that particular market. So it's great working with the, that kind of talent. They're demanding. You better be on your A game. It's a lot of fun as well. Very cool. And then before the show, you mentioned that you were looking at potentially creating your own platform to raise, or maybe within your own organization, you want to start raising through social media or your website instead of potentially working with these joint venture partners. Are you looking to transition to raise from limited partners or tell me more about your new capital raising philosophy? As I mentioned to you, we are looking at creating a platform where we can raise capital from accredited individuals, investors. So this is something we haven't done before. We did do an offering through CrowdStreet about six months ago. That was sort of our first toe in the water, so to speak. And then here recently, we're going to offer another piece of one of our deals that we currently own. And we're putting that out there on our website to sell to accredited investors as well. And the reason for that, the senior space is, so, is very different from the multifamily. First of all, when we were multifamily, minimum was 200 units and above. And usually that meant that the we were buying these things for 40 million and above. Most of our deals are probably in the 60 to 100 million range. And most of our investors, they won't write a check below 30 million, some of them 50 million. When we bring them a deal that needs $5 million, they won't even look at it. Maybe if we brought them a portfolio of 10 of those and the check was $50 million, we'd, we'd do it. But we're buying these one-off because we get the best deal on a one-off basis. Portfolios attract the big guys, and they go for a number higher than what we normally want to pay. So we're usually not successful in acquiring portfolios, but on the one-offs, we can pick them and do those. But we need a smaller check. Most of our equity is on the senior space is five to, to like 10 million. Last year, most of the assets, I mean, a good number of the assets, we used our own capital to close on. And then the plan would be to re-syndicate those later when we have them stabilized, so to speak. And so that's the idea of really trying to create an avenue here where we can bring in individual accredited investors. And then the idea then is to roll up a portfolio where we could sell it to one of our institutional guys. 
Okay, so you mentioned you worked with CrowdStreet. I think it was one time. What was your experience? How much were you able to raise? Because I think the, the regulation CF allows for up to $5 million that you can raise. Was that the limit that you had when you worked with CrowdStreet or was it a higher limit than that? I think we raised three or four million. I think we were like the first senior housing offering they had ever done and went pretty well. We raised, I think it was three, three, four million. They're great and do a great job in my opinion. And we just felt, you know, after doing that, that we should try and do it ourselves. Not that we wouldn't go back to them, but we'd rather do it ourselves and, and have direct contact with that investor versus with them. We don't have contact with the investor. They, they manage the investors and we deal through them. Okay. I think we're going to dive into this a little bit. I have a friend, Chris Roberts, that did something similar to you where he worked with a crowdfunding platform and then he had a great experience so he ended up buying that platform. I believe it's called Tycoon Invest. I'm wondering if, because you had a good experience raising from CrowdStreet, are you creating a crowdfunding platform the way that he did, where you have to go and get regulated by an attorney and create something where you can raise multiple millions of dollars? I think $5 million at a time is what crowdfunding allows if you're using Regulation CF. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about something distinct? We're not looking to be a CrowdStreet. We're not looking to raise capital for other sponsors. We're strictly doing it for ourselves. Okay. Very interesting. All right. So earlier, I got one more question before we dive into the lightning round. You mentioned that you found assisted living to be a lot more profitable versus multifamily. So your investors that come in and partner on a multifamily, they participate with you on the real estate and share some of those profits with you in the assisted living space. Are they also sharing in the profits from the business of assisted living other than the real estate part? Because I think you charge for the the nurse practitioners and people that take care. It seems like it would be very profitable. I'm not sure if I completely understand that, though. Why is it more profitable than multifamily? You nailed it. It's an operating business. So, Ruben, you you picked up on the key element here. It's not just a real estate investment. It's an operating business and you're generating the revenue out of that business. The real estate certainly is a critical part of it, but the revenue is is generated from the business. That allows you to pay that mortgage and obviously the more revenue that's created by that business in that asset makes the asset more valuable because now you could pay more for that asset. So that's how it works. It works that way in multifamily too, to the same degree, although it's way more intensive as a business and an operating platform than it is multi. Operations is certainly important to multifamily investment, but with senior housing, it's 20 times as <laughs> more important. So I, I always tell it's 80% operations and 20% real estate, whereas multi is probably what? 50-50 or 60-40 or something like that, I guess you could say, but that's the difference there. Good stuff. Okay, very cool. Thanks for educating us on that particular business model. Let's jump into the lightning round. My first question to you is, what is the best vacation you've ever taken? I used to take the family over to France and ski in the French Alps, so that was pretty fun. Favorite book of any kind? It's a book by Harold Janine, and I think it's called Managing 
Harold Janine was the CEO of ITT, which was a huge conglomerate uh, back in the day. And he wrote a book, it's now a classic, it's out of print. It's really a phenomenal book. Interesting. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? What do you mean by mindset? So some people will say, for example, Tony Robbins likes to say that success is 80% psychology and 20% maybe mechanism or some kind of tool. What's your experience? How important is mindset to your success? I'd use the word optimism versus mindset. And I think that, look, in this business, you have to be an optimist, I think. I think you've got to come at it where you can do it. You can make it happen. The glass is half full. It's not half empty. So I would say I definitely fall into that category. Maybe a little too much so, but, but I don't see how you do it without it. How long do you want to live? Well, the goal is 120. Nice. That's the goal. I love and, it. And who knows the way science is going. I mean, that may happen. So it could. It's interesting because science can help you live longer. And you would think because of that, that the age span, the age expectancy rather would be going up when in fact, it's actually going down because a lot of people are consuming way too many carbs and suffering from inflammation. So for certain people, it can definitely help. And for the majority of people, there's no saving them. All right. How about this? Best way to raise capital from your perspective? Well, the best way to raise capital is depending on where your model is. If you're trying to raise capital from institutional investors and billion dollar family offices, you have to have a, a significant background and experience and a team because they check you out very, very thoroughly and they're pros. If you're starting out in the business, it's it's Uncle Bob and Aunt Julie. It's friends and family and, and you grow from there. So there's no best way and most start with the friends and family. What would you need in order to 10X your business to multiply it by 10 times? A lot of capital. And what is a capital raising mistake you see people making in this business? I don't know what mistakes they're making. I think it's very important that you be very conservative in your projections. I think it's very important to highlight the challenges of every investment and where things could go wrong. So the big guys and the institutional guys, they don't want to hear about how great everything is. They want to hear about how do they manage risk and what is the risk to this investment? That's what they look at first. They don't look at the upside. They first analyze the downside. That's their main concern when they analyze an investment. So I think if you're going out and raising capital, tell the investor where the risk is first and make sure they're comfortable with that level of risk for that level of reward. Excellent input. Do your spiritual philosophies have anything to do with your success in business? Oh, absolutely. How so? I believe in God and in Jesus, and that's brought up in how I've lived my life. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near-death experience? Neither one, yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question brought to you by Shannon Amigo. She would like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world? Oh, I'd like to leave a, a an impact in all the people that I've dealt with and all the and the people that I've hired. We've hired a ton of young people throughout our 43 years in business. I've probably had hundreds of young analysts that have come to work for us and, and moved on and been successful and started their own businesses and, and grown. So that gives me a lot of pleasure, a lot of joy. And it's it, it feels really good to 
think that you had an impact on a young young person and they've gone on and done well. Helping other people create generational wealth is huge impact. I love that. Thanks for entertaining us on that part of the show. Shout out to the Capital Razor Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star written review and shout outs on our sponsors, the Family Office Club. Chris, how does the audience get a hold of you, my friend? LloydJonesLLC.com. All right. And any last words of wisdom for the aspiring capital raiser as they scale on their journey? Just keep at it. It's a tough business and raising capital is very challenging and difficult. And just don't give up. Fantastic. This has been great. Well, cool, man. I think I'm going to start coming to Dallas a little bit more frequently because we're having family office clubs out there, events, I should say. So hopefully I'll, I'll see you at one of these and send you a ticket. Maybe you can come visit me on one of them. I definitely will. Sure. <laughs> Very cool, Chris. Love to see you. Dallas is great. Excellent. All right. With that, we're going to end it off. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate you coming on the show, my friend. Have a great Thank day. Thank you very much, Ruben, for having me. You bet.